want to get service, selection, and price so low. The record archive is the place to go. This is Alex and Nick from Tyrannonaut, and you're listening to the Grim Dystopian Podcast.
That was Land of Stagnation by Tyrannonaut, track number one off of Marble Eye. Hey guys, <laughs> thanks for coming to talk to us. And the crack of the beer symbolizes it right there. <laughs> uh, I know this is long overdue. I think we talked to you guys about the podcast like two years ago, couple, three years ago, eight years ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you guys are hard to corral in. It was around uh, the Marble Eye release time, I think, wasn't it? Very, very elusive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that'd be November 2020. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a rough time, but we're here now. Well, thank you. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for really us. appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, cool. we're stoked. Yep. This is going to be awesome. Yeah. Thank you, guys. So, can we start with the correct pronunciation of the band name? Okay. Because I think I just said it and <laughs> fucked it up. Yeah. And what it means. Where did you get the name from? Oh man, that's a story. So the correct correct pronunciation is Tyrannonaut. Okay. If you just like Tyrannosaurus Rex mm-hmm. and not like super not, but yeah. it has nothing to do with dinosaurs. <laughs> we, get, we get that one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because Alex was a really big uh, dinosaur fan when he was younger, so it kind of just went full circle. <laughs> I guess we we took um. We took like super not from Black Sabbath, but then like the the prefix Tyranno is above all or all knowing, and then not is like someone who like trips or fares through life. So we thought some you know, just kind of meld those two together. We actually got the name of the band was pretty much inspired by the lyrics of The Watcher by Hawkwind. Oh. It was the first song that Lemmy wrote for Hawkwind on Do Re Mi. And it kind of sinks into with even though you weren't thinking of that when you came up with the name, um, Supernaut. The lyrics to oh, yeah, Supernaut definitely yeah. are, are. That's like my go-to, like just like the bare bones um, explanation of it. But it, it was, I guess, the Watcher by Hawkwind was that was the lyrics to that song kind of tie into what the band name is. Yeah, a lot of Hawkwind influence yeah. for sure, and the yeah. lyrical themes and stuff. So you just thought like something inspired from that just on our mind at the time it's awesome nice so you guys are brothers we're brothers oh yeah um can you tell us what you do individually for the band go ahead nick (laughs) um so basically drummer and i like to think myself as a uh kind of a i guess supervisor maybe or just like quality control quality control Mm mm-hmm Alex is extremely focused on his mission and our mission, and we work very close together, but it's just like when we're kind of a yin and a yang, whenever we get too far off or stray from the path of what's right, you know, we'll, we'll get together and we'll yeah, the, the band's, consult. We're, we're very democratic with everything that we do, so I do guitars, bass, all vocals. I handle probably what? 80 to 90 percent of the lyrics 
Yeah. So, but, I mean, if you wanted to put it into like Marble Eye terms, like, yeah, yeah. it uh, it'd be, I only wrote the lyrics to Marble Eye. So, yeah. But even though I play most of the instruments in the band, like every riff, every note, and pretty much everything that goes into making the music is checked by Nick. Yeah. And yeah. vice versa. If Nick plays something on the drums, it's checked by me. So, like I said, everything we do is extremely democratic. Yeah, it's a constant work together. It's not a. It's my way. So yeah. here it is. It's yeah, democratic is the best way to describe yeah. it. But do we compromise? I don't. We get pretty hard at it when we get yeah. into. Uh, uh, con- uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of constructive criticism. Yeah, for sure. You could say, yeah. These lyrics are. What, what are you doing with these lyrics? Yeah. What? what <laughs> why is this riff, this riff here? Sucks. This riff is not any <laughs> good. It has no context being in here. Well, come up with a different riff, yeah. please. Or why did you play that drum part for this long? We should play yeah. it for this long. Or we've wrote we've wrote a song that was six minutes long, and then Nick just decided like this is this is not good enough, so we scrapped the whole thing. How is that for your creativity? Like, does that push you to be better or does that like stunt it no it doesn't stunt it at all because if he if he's not totally happy with something it means we got to go back to the drawing board and basically like pull a different set of influences or so we're at the point now where like if the music doesn't make me or him feel something when we hear it it's not good enough that's a pretty high standard yeah and it's it, it gets extremely time consuming. Yeah, for sure. I uh, wonder why you guys don't have time for us. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Quality over quantity. <laughs> That's very true. Four years, man. That was a long process. Yeah. But are you guys happy with the release? Absolutely. It's. Uh, I think uh, George Lucas described it best. Like. You kind of just let it out, and it's like the best you can do at the point. But you, you could hold on to a piece of something that you're making forever, and always tweak it and of say course. like, "Oh, yeah. well, this could be better." And you know, we've gone back multiple times of making the album. Like, I've this is coming to me right now. I just remembered that we recorded bass tracks, and we put like this horrible. Like, we've made so many mistakes on the album, but we put this horrible effect on it and we had no absolutely no idea what we were doing and we brought it to the guy who mixed our album uh Jim Plotkin of Old Lady Drivers and he's like this would just sound a lot better if this was a clean bass and we were just like well shit here we go we got to spend another 2 weeks recording all the bass parts and yeah. i'm sitting there like cue and Alex in on everything <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i can't remember what that was pointing to but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, man. <laughs> <laughs> Does it stunt the creativity? Does it, you know, are we satisfied with the release? And I would say... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We we wouldn't release it if it wasn't something that we didn't want to hold in our hands ourselves. Yeah. Like, when we got that, we let it go, and we were just like, all right, we got to press it and make the master for the LP. And when that master came, and I mean, we were just like so happy with what we made we were just like it's quite an experience to be just a couple guys jamming in their basement from like 2015 to 2017 working your balls off and you make something that not only like to us it's like you know 
what what other people think like it's awesome that people love our music but like at the end of the day it's like are we satisfied with what we made and that was the ultimate thing when we got that test pressing we were like just stunned we were just like this is awesome pure euphoria i think frank zappa put it bad put it best he said like because it sounded good to me if he didn't think it's it was up to his standard it wasn't good enough yeah i like it yeah there, I hear so many musicians say like, oh, I won't even listen listen to that release. I fucking hate it. And yeah. I'm like, I can't imagine putting no, in would, like all that work. That would be unacceptable to us. Yeah. Plus there's like no, like there's conflict when we make music, but it's like there's just this standard, I guess, where we're making this together and it's a, it's a joint effort and we're going to call each other out. Like you don't let things pass or you don't let things slide. You always put what you have on the table, mm-hmm. say what you like and what you don't like, and uh, just put your best foot forward, for sure. sure. I think you guys are kind of in an advantage, too, being siblings. Oh, absolutely. Because you guys can be brutally honest with each other, yeah. and it's, like I was Like I was talking to you, too, before, like, even if we, first of all, it's rare that we fight outside of music, but when we do, if we're, like, yelling at each other, like, no, I honestly, I think the song should be like this. And he puts up a wall. It's not like you can just say like, well, I don't want to deal with you anymore. It's like we're br- and then you go up the stairs and it's like, like Nick said, well, what do you want for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't hide from each other that you have to work it out. Yeah. But I, I think another thing that comes into it, too, is our, our, our musical taste too like i was just i was telling you guys before uh, we're ripping old tapes of when we were younger and we're just sitting in the living room and my dad's playing like the sensational alex harvey band like we literally grew up with the same music and we were hanging with each other since i was born basically listening to the same music and it's like when you have musical tastes that are like throughout it's not just like at the beginning of life but like throughout teenage years throughout when we both went to college like we were in constant contact all the time shared if he found a new band it was shared with me and vice versa we're always in lockstep with each other yeah yeah that's cool i like it um so i know we kind of already talked about this when we were pre-gaming too but Mm -hmm. how'd you guys get into metal god it's always been there i think I think the, if the I, first bands that I ever heard were it was David Bowie, Sensational Alex Harvey Band, Bauhaus, Black Sabbath. So there you go. I it was the first two Black Sabbath albums for me, literally as far back as I could remember. And then it just kind of like snowballed from there. So I was into Black Sabbath because my father and my family was into it. I heard Alice Cooper when I was eleven, which was you know that was life changing for me. And then I I heard Iron Maiden when I was fourteen, and then that just like the floodgates completely opened after that. Yep. Yeah. So. Er, early memories, like the couple memories that I remember, is I mean I couldn't have been older than four years old, and uh, we would be in that red suburban driving to our babysitter's house, and <laughs> yeah. there would literally be like because Alex had a he liked Black Sabbath or uh, not Black Sabbath. We did like Black Sabbath, so he would play Paranoid all the time. But another thing that we also listened to that I remember is uh Black Label Society. 
I remember yeah, we would listen to that. Even one. though we never continued listening to it, that was still like for a couple, you know, I was four and you were eight or nine years old. Yeah, that was That's some pretty one. heavy stuff. And then, like Alex was saying, I think the Iron when Iron Maiden was introduced to us when we were yeah. 14 and I, you were 14 and I was probably 10. And, How did that come about? Oh, man. You want to tell that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, there was also Metallica, too. I think Metallica came a little bit before. Dude, I totally forgot about that. So we used to go to my cousin Zach's house in Cleveland, and Mike would always, his father Mike would always show me like the coolest music. So he was into, he was into Yes, he was into Alice Cooper, he was into Metallica. He used to do shows when Metallica came to Cleveland, but when I was 11, he showed me, or my father showed me Alice Cooper's greatest hits. And then we visited them for Thanksgiving one year, or maybe it was Easter. And I think it was on the same trip. He pulled out Metallica's Kill 'em All. And he pulled out <laughs> Iron Maiden Number of the Beast. And I heard Number of the Beast, and it was like a quantum leap. It was like, <laughs> okay, this there's something here. Yeah. yeah I, I have to, I have to jump on this. Yeah. Yeah, I had another memory jump into my head. We were sitting playing PlayStation or something, and you had that uh this old CD player that you got for Christmas or something, and you had Rise Aces, Aces of Spades. You had Motorhead. Ace of Spades, I remember yeah. that was one of the first CDs yeah. you got, but you also had um Ride the Lightning, and we I always mm. remember just you playing Ride the Lightning while we were playing Devil May Cry on PS2. <laughs> yes. And like that was just like yes. it was Fine just memories. always followed us throughout our entire life. Like it it it's it fills the space, the music that we listen so to. I get, I, to answer your question, it it was always there yeah. as far back as I can remember. So but the the first stuff we ever heard obviously was Black Sabbath. Yeah, Black yeah. Sabbath for sure would be an early one. That's cool. And you guys said your dad was like super into music. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Um, I mean, when my dad was growing up in Cleveland, he was listening to the early punk stuff. If anyone knows, like the Pagans, that's like considered one of the very, very early punk bands of all time. Like they were in, doing in it. Cleveland, yeah. Yeah. Well, they were doing some of the stuff with the Dead Boys before even the stuff in yep. England was going on. And uh, Pagans, he, Dead Boys. He heard the, the stuff on college radio too. So like Bauhaus and. Uh, even Simple Minds and yep. just everything in that hodgepodge called Cleveland where they had like even he remembers he tells me all the time he's like I remember when Working Man first came on the radio in like 74 or 75 or whatever and I could never they never said what the name of the song was but that like he was in that he, people always talk about Rush being big in Cleveland and stuff like that was really a musical <clears throat> center for a lot yeah. of things here Cleveland, in America. Cleveland was also the only city in the U.S. where the Sensational Alex Harvey band was big too, which is yeah, that's the only band. Alex Harvey's basically the only musician I ever idolized, and still to this day, he's the only guy that I ever idolized. And it, it's kind of funny too because with that whole like dad being into music and stuff, he also. When we were growing up, he kind of participated in uh, in that scene, I guess, for lack of a better term, where he would record local bands all the time onto his reel-to-reel tape deck. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, so he would like go to the concert, but at home, like they'd play the concert on the radio, and he'd set his reel-to-reel tape deck to record the concert, or he'd bring it to the concert and record it off of the the uh, the mixing board. <laughs> so, like they're a band that that are actually heavily influenced by the kinks is uh lucky pierre 
they're fantastic. That's a huge influence for us musically. I yeah. mean, we cover their songs in our basement. We love playing to them. Such a Hi- huge influence. Hyper obscure band. Pro- oh, no, no one's ever. No one knows who they are, but it's just like. And then he. That's recorded, it's in our DNA. <laughs> right. I, and then there's like bands where it's like they recorded, they like pressed their own single. And anyone who was like in that circle of that band, Lucky Pierre, like there was this band called The Monitors. And they were like a kind of like a punkish type band. And they were. Man, they were just so cool. They he would like. We've got so many live shows. But of dad, that stuff. The, the fact is, Dad knew those people. Yeah, he would ask permission to record their concerts. He'd see them at, play at the local record shop at the Drome, and he saw the Pagans play live and scared the shit out of them. He saw Lucky Pierre play live. He saw the Monitors, all those cool bands that came to Cleveland. Flock of Seagulls, Men Without Hats, you know? Yeah, and he also... Totally getting off the metal train, but... Well, he was telling me that he had a friend, too, that, like, it's all about, like, we always talk about, it's the community, like, the community you guys create here, the Mm -hmm. community that the archive makes. Mm -hmm. He had a record shop called Looney Tune Records, and he'd go there and just pick through the crate, and he tells me the story all the time of how he walked in there and he heard unknown pleasures for the first time by joy division. He's like, that was like the truth to him. Like he got all and his buddy Carlo would introduce him to stuff like this. And it's just like, you know, it's always that community of people that are introducing each other to new music that, and this is an actual like example of it because probably without that guy and the college radio scene and all that stuff, like what Alex and I have today probably wouldn't be, be a thing. That's how important it is to pass yeah. the music on to people, man. Yeah. How old is your dad? He was born in 62. So, 60. yeah. He's 60. Yep. Ken's 10 years younger. Yeah. That's why I did the math so fast. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right, your turn. Uh, did you guys grow up here in Rochester? Yeah, yeah. yeah we've always been born and raised. Rochester natives. Yep. Mm. Um, I was, even though you guys are quite a bit younger than me, I was happy to hear that you guys knew about heavy metal records and Webster. Oh, yeah. Bob Stu, we still miss him. Yeah. I miss him so much, man. Yeah. He in peace. really had the best stuff in yeah. his store, and I don't know. He, it's some of my best memories. Like One memory that I have going there is uh, he had uh, the first Nasty Savage record, I got that from him for like 10 bucks. It was in the used bin. Love that record. Um, And then he also would get stuff like really obscure stuff, like high roller record stuff that's from Mm -hmm. Europe that gets pressed in Europe and no one would ever get. And I bought, he bought, you bought Crystal Logic by Manila Road. God, I love that album. And I bought (laughs) Open the Gates by Manila Road. And it was just like, he had some cool it was, shit. So, and like, what else did you buy from there? I remember we would we buy, Sleep Dope Smoker. You buy, uh, uh, nice. I remember we got, you got uh, Satyricon's Dark Medieval Times there on CD. That was yep. an import. Yep. Like a obscure 90s import of that. Bathory, Bloodfire, Death. I bought all my Bathory CDs from him. Candle Mass. Candle Mass Records. Um, I mean, oh, I bought a, uh, goes on. yeah, I bought, I remember. I think this is a thing, but um, you guys know the first Raven record, right? Rock Until You Drop. Mm-hmm. I went into the store one time, and I'm looking. Oh, so good. That band is awesome. <laughs> but anyways, um, I go into the used bin, and I look, and I think every copy of it is signed by all the members, but I look on the back, and it's signed by all the guys from Raven. And, you know, as a 16-year-old kid, I look at this <laughs> thing, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is awesome. <laughs> and it was only like 15 bucks, and I'm like, oh. 
Bob was the best. But the yeah, I remember just great things about Bob. I felt so bad when uh, his place flooded, the original place that yeah. was at the yep. bottom of that church. Yeah, it was such an awesome place just to go, and you could be there for hours, just like going to the archive. Yeah, yeah. He, he made a lot of money off us. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Went to a good place for sure. I used yeah. to go there when I was like 11, 12 years old. Oh, oh really? Way. No way. Yeah. So I probably have similar similar memories. Yeah, we that mi- you guys have. We miss him. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, he was. Yeah. That was a great store. Yeah, he was awesome a cool guy. guy. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like it. I think he had stuff going on for a while, but it seemed like it happened fast. Yep. Uh, it's pretty sad. Yeah. What was the coolest record you ever bought from Bob? The coolest record? Yeah. Um, God, I bought so many. Like a lot of those over there uh-huh. from there. But um, uh, I remember I bought the first Nasty Savage. Yep. And, hey. Which is an awesome record. Yeah. And, Agent Steel, Skeptics, Apocalypse. Yep. At the same time, those are like a big influence on me, those two. Like right when they came out, I got them. Fun fact, Bob is thanked in the liner notes on the first demo. Oh, yes, that's he cool. Is. I love that. Nice. Yes, he that's is. That's awesome. There's a, there's a picture of us in our basement just after we finished that demo. We literally threw every el- – it was me and Nick laying splayed out on the floor – and we took every record we had and threw it on top of us. Uh-huh. Basically just like this mound of records, almost like Raven Rock Until You Drop. With all the equipment. With, yeah. Yeah. They had their equipment. We had their records. And we just threw them all on top of us. And it says like, thank you to these record stores, these labels, and like heavy metal records and Webster. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Bob was a great guy. Yep. <clears throat> so like comparing the demo to, to Marble Eye... The demo sounded a little like you guys were trying to find yourself. Absolutely. And then thousand percent. Marble Eye was like, this is who we are. It's very... Yeah, so when we first started playing music, we were like heavily into Amoebic. Amoebics is the reason we play music together, because Stig and Rob... They're brothers. They're brothers. They played music together, and the first song that we ever could play... Physically play together was Axeman by Amoebics, and we're like, holy crap, okay, we can actually do this. So we were into, like, Amoebics, Angel Witch, Black Sabbath, Cathedral, uh, Sleep. But we were into, like, weird shit like Morbid from Sweden. Mm. Yeah. But So we we said we were going to make a demo, and it didn't matter what came about, out of us, whatever songs, whatever genre. So the first song is, like, fast celtic frost black and roll type stuff yeah second song is like first immortal with celtic frost and well with morbid inspired vocal vocals with me on vocals for the only yep. ever time i'll be on vocals for <laughs> yep. tyrannonaut yep um that was inspired by morbid yep. december moon with dead whispering yep so you nice. had like early primitive obscure I guess black metal type stuff, and then we kind of switched to more of an angel witch type sound with the third and calling of the hermit. Yeah, not our finest hour. Yeah, but then we decided, okay, we're gonna make a Witchfinder General cover. Yeah, and we're gonna do this song called Opulence Caster, which was like a send up to like Black Sabbath, Doom Metal, Witchfinder General, all that stuff. And consecutively with every song we made, it was like we eventually hit this stride where we're like, okay, we we're into the biggest mammoth riffs from the 1970s. 
we're going to make songs with storytelling qualities of progressive rock bands that we like, like King Crimson, Sensational Alex Harvey Band, Genesis. But we're also going to have like the obscure riffs of like 80, you know, Celtic Frost, Sodom, some, you know, the evil sounding riffs in the 80s. So I, I feel like when we did that Witchfinder General cover and Opulence Caster, we're like, we kind of zoned in. We're like, okay, this is this is going to be the sound. From this here is the on stuff out. that we can kind of play the most and right. have at the, the time. That's what we thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's fair to say the last song that we make on each release is where we're going to go next. So that kind of cues in the listener. If you listen to the last song with every release that we make. That's where we're going for the it's future. Kind of a segue into yep. everything segues into another. It's like um, conceptual continuity. Frank Zappa kind of pioneered that. I like it. Yeah, it was. It was a pretty just a that demo was just like it's just it's a madness. it's mad that is just like total like if ADD could be an album that <laughs> or a demo, sorry, that would be it because we literally had no idea. Total disregard in, for in the listener. Every single, con- like, th- and this is how it's just like, you almost have to just go and do to make something like you to learn. Because I mean, I remember when we started off on that demo, like I had an old crappy CB 100 drum set that my dad literally had from back in the eighties. And you That's know, what we, I learned on. Yeah. And we had this old, Alesis like two channel thing that we had no idea how to use <laughs> like okay so we got we had this uh Sennheiser or, or Audio-Technica sorry it was an Audio-Technica AT801 and it was an omnidirectional microphone so it just captures and everything so it room. captures everything so if you look at this room here imagine like my drums are in the left corner behind you and then my brother's amp is pointing straight at the drum set. <laughs> so like the, those sound waves are totally attacking each other and conflicting with we're each like, other. We're like, so screw the, it. We're just going to put it right yeah, smack in so the middle. So we're going to put it right in the middle of the room, but not just <laughs> aim it like down at the floor or something. We're going to aim it towards the wall because that's, <laughs> that's the only way it sounds to good. literally <laughs> cut the sound waves in half. <laughs> yes. So like... The guitar and drums on that album are completely live. Yes. One take through, no editing, no cutting, no editing, no nothing. No metronome, no timekeeping device. Don't you guys kind of appreciate that you have it, though, to like... Have what exactly? Well, the demo. I'm talking about the demo. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. To like look back on and be like... It's so awesome to look back on and just see like how we've grown. The only song we're not that crazy about is Calling of the Hermit. Well, yeah, I mean, when we get into Marble Eye, maybe we could talk more about, like, how the vocals came to be, because, yeah. like, for me, that was probably the only thing that I had to make a hard stop on was the vocal, like, our vocal, what we picked for vocals has always been a tough spot throughout the making of Marble Eye, but, like, that is where, when we were talking about before with, like, my input, it's like, with our musical knowledge, I can just put that input in and say like, well, maybe the vocals might sound better if you do like a, a Hawkwind type vocal or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's like what it became, but don't do try and extend your voice to like an Ozzy type vocal. Or Cause Kevin, Kevin Hayborn or Kevin Hayborn, like Angel not Witch. a lot of people can really pull that off. Yeah. Well, um, but like no, you, they, they might think otherwise. Yeah. They, some people might really like calling of the hermit vocals. Um, salute to you. If you like that, Let's talk about Marble Eye, but first... Let's listen to the title track off their 2020 release. 
So tell us about Marble Eye. Do you guys have a, a favorite song? Oh boy. Uh, f- for me, it's Erskine Hollow. Yeah, because it's. I don't think I'll write anything better than that. That like, if I died tomorrow, I'd like to be remembered for the content of that song. I guess you could put it that way. Nice. It was just our most like comprehensive effort. Yeah. Just like where we had. You can tell in the first couple of songs, because I think those were the first songs that we wrote for the album, that we were really kind of getting a feel for everything. Yep. And then uh, Dolor House is just a total tribute to Dream Death. Dream Death, Penance. Penance. Yep. And then you get in a Erskine Hollow, and it's like, okay, how what song identifies Tyrannonaut the most, or everything that's been put together for the band up to this point? That is the best snapshot in time of how we felt during yeah, that time you have to have 26 minutes on your hand but yeah. oh yeah because you have to outdo genesis supper's ready by making a song longer than supper's ready yeah. so you guys are both in agreement with that a thousand, thousand percent yeah. Yeah. yeah i have a i have a love for um the title track marble eye because i arranged it and wrote the lyrics for it because that when you write something, it's a when you totally write lyrics for something, it's a little different than when you really when you contribute with somebody else. Because I remember we were writing those lyrics together in the basement, and it was a very tumultuous time in college. It was you were pretty, in college, I was out. For me, yeah, I was in college, and it was a pretty tough part of my life. And it's just like, all right, I'm gonna write how I feel right now. This is how I feel right now at the exact moment. And it's just going to be me contribute. Like this is my lyrical contribution. And that's just, I have a soft spot mm-hmm. for that song. Cause which it's- was cool too, because Fenris picked that song. For, right. Um, is it the Fenris metal pact? Yeah. And yeah. So that's- he picked that one up. We, we thought that was, Hey, I also, arra- I also arranged that song yeah. too. So yep. it was like the, this is how the drum, this is, it's going to be verse, chorus, verse, chorus, whatever. And these are the drum parts that are going to be there. Alex match riffs up to it and see what you can do with it. And yeah, so I have a soft spot for Marble Eye, but really the magnum, the magnum opus of it is for sure Erskine Hollow. So was your writing style different for the title track based on what you were going through at the time? Yes. You know what I mean? Can you explain a a little bit more about like what I was going through at the time? Do you want to know more about just like how I came up with the structure of the song? Well, so you guys obviously have a a process, like a writing process. Sure. Right. But you have a soft spot for the title track. Mm -hmm. So did you have to, Alex, because nobody can see me. Um, (laughs) Did you have to kind of change your process for how you get through a song? Yeah, definitely. Because that... I didn't really articulate that. No, well, that's, no, that's perfect. I think we understood it. From You had to totally change up how that's, you, that you song thought. Was, that song was never rehearsed. No, I recorded the drums separate. So that's the only song on the album that there's no syncopated, like we performed it together. I had the structure in my mind. I still remember I was in my circuits class. I wasn't paying attention way too much <laughs> into music. Yeah. Um, I was like, all right, more important well, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. All right, let's put it out this way. I want the structure to be like this. All right, that sounds good. Alex, here's my template. Adjust it how you want. 
but also it, I remember it being kind of tough for Alex because he had to write riffs to he's usually the one that's like, all right, we're going to play this. Then we're going to play this. That's then we're going to play this. Yep. Right. So that song was completely different from all the others. Cause all I have is a drum track to work with that yep. he played all the way through. It's like, how am I going to make a riff around I mean, the drums? around the drums yeah. and so, what some of those riffs were in like 10, four switching to four, four there. There's a lot of time changes. So, in that so song. the first riff is one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. So yeah. six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. There's a lot of 10, four, there's four, four. Yes. But there's tempo changes in it too. And it took me, a couple months to come up with riffs that he was satisfied with where he finally said okay th- this is perfect now put the lyrics over it and try to sing something that yep. that jives with it but you were also uh you were satisfied with the riffs too it wasn't just me saying oh yeah riffs are good <laughs> um no it was like i wanted us to both be in agreement it wasn't yeah. like this is my song it's my it was way just a different yeah. writing just a w- totally different like let's flip the script what's, a little yeah. what's bit. insane about that album is we started writing we started from the beginning writing that music in the spring of 2017 and nick had every single drum track recorded by august of 2017 so technically that album the all rhythm drum rhythms for that album were done by spring of 2017 but the actual music the the guitars the bass the triple tracked vocals the triple tracked guitar solos triple tracked everything it didn't (laughs) it didn't the madness didn't stop until november of 2019 yeah to put that into perspective for people so like when i was telling you guys like when we were in the mixing process and jim plotkin tells us yeah, this would be a lot better if you recorded the bass. Yeah. Like hard, hard lessons that we had to learn from writing yeah. that. Yeah. Just like, and that's why, like for me, it's crazy when I just looking back on it because I had that rhythm track done when I was in college, and I graduated in 2019. So it was like done when I was done with college. So you can imagine going four years through school or whatever, and not having an album released until you get out. Yep. Yeah, you know, it's a it, it's like slow cooking a brisket or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then having the world shut down. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was huge too. Yeah. Holy crap, yes. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into the vinyl because that's Absolutely. a good sure. way. So how'd that all come about? So we always knew that we wanted to have this released on vinyl. It was going to be the ultimate representation of of a true heavy rock band that we true heavy rock album that we wanted to own it was going to be the ultimate representation of that so we made the music and it's kind of funny looking back at it because everything happens by chance it seems like i'm looking for the Witchfinder general live 83 album on ebay and i saw this guy's name on the Witchfinder general website his name was russ frankovich and I found the record on eBay and it just so happened that the guy's username said RB Vrankovich Jr. or something like that. So I bought the record from him and I said, Hey, are you Russ from the Witchfinder General website? And he said, Yeah, um, yeah, what's going on? So I said, like, don't you own like Buried by Time and Dust Records with your brother and you put out all the Witchfinder General stuff? 
he said, yeah, yeah. So basically I got his number and his email and we called him one day just on a whim and we basically hit it off and became like best friends. So long story short, Russ introduced like during that time from like 2017 to 2019, 2020. Yeah. He introduced us to so many cool bands in that time. It was like Gaskin, Pagan Altar, um, Marquis de Sade, Marquis de Sade badge just all these insane like really cool he's bands. really into the obscure new wave of british heavy metal stuff and that is just like we like just you know flies to a, a light on yeah. that it's just like awesome stuff so I, I wouldn't say he was like a watcher while we were making the music but he was definitely like someone that helped that come into fruition well we can we became really good friends really with him we, friends. we would call him and we still do we keep in contact with him he's like a brother to us um we called him probably once every month mm-hmm. and we would just talk music and we just said one day is like you know let's hey let's get together you know we're close let's we'll fly out to california and come and see you so at this point we had most of the music finished it right. was it was well, on like a cassette tape there yeah, is actually was, a rare cassette tape of like yeah there's like two of them there's like existence. two of them and one of them sits in my truck yeah. um but yeah there's like a old cassette tapes of the original like tracks that we had for the guitar and drums yep. and that was it so basically we had the uh, i had the album roughly mixed but i have no business mixing a song with like 121 different tracks or 50 whatever it was so we went to visit russ hit it off with him and his brother for an extended weekend we literally had a whole weekend where we he's got an awesome collection like the best collection ever and we just would sit we'd met everyone uh, everyone in his family we'd go up to his music room and he had all this really cool like obscure new wave of british heavy metal and we just play that drink 12 beers for a night <laughs> wake up the next yeah. morning and he'd be like all right we're going to amoeba records we're going to go and find some stuff we'd yep. go record shopping for the entire day just talk about music in the in the van while we were but driving there and then come back and do it all over again i think to cut through the fat he was the one that like told us like okay once you have the music finished like you need to reach out to um who did it was it it was pirates press records so yeah he gave us he was like here's a company that could help you out. They're a broker yep. that um, assists you. It's kind of, so, you know, costs money, but it's good to have a broker that can take care of all that stuff for you uh, in case something goes wrong, which is foreshadowing. Yep. Um, <laughs> yep. So we, we knew, yeah. we knew that Jim Plotkin did a lot of the remastering and mixing for Russ's releases. So like he did Desolation Angels, which to me was like, one of the greatest remasters ever that Jim did. And of course we love old lady drivers, the crazy grindcore band. from the Oh 80s. yeah. So absolutely. He got us in touch with Jim during the mixing and mastering process. He got us in touch with Mark that did the layout. And by what was it? It was late fall of 2020. Yeah. We had the record in our hands. It was like November 3rd, 2020. And I remember opening it up and everything was perfect. We pulled the records out and they were totally scratched up. We're like, oh my God. I remember doing, we we did, we did the numbers and we pulled out like every single record. So every record that's in that 
people get of Marbleye besides it being signed and everything was hand checked by me and Alex. So we pulled it out because of all that experience where every record literally had like someone took a knife and ran it down the grooves. There was basically a quality like it basically issue for quality the control. Uh, We've touched every single like record and checked yeah, it to over just to like make sure. Twice. It's just crazy that that happened. But when we so this is why when we had Pirates Press do it. They're, they're great. I mean, I wouldn't say anything bad about them. They took great care of us, and they say, like, they'll do 100, 150 presses a year, and one goes bad every year. So we're, whatever, what's the probability? One out of yeah. 150. You're, you know, you have a better chance of, you know, maybe not winning the lottery, but it felt like we won the shitty lottery, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, yeah, so that got... We but we called the broker and the broker was basically like, "Oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah, here you go. Like, we'll we'll get this all settled they, out. They I'll call everyone." They repressed all the records for us, and Nick's like, well, "What are we gonna do with these old ones?" I said, "We're gonna make beer coasters out of them. We're gonna drill a hole saw right through them and make beer coasters. It'll be perfect advertising." So we kept ourselves entertained entertained during COVID, like when everyone was inside. Like I was outside with the hole saw, just like drilling. <laughs> coasters for people yeah. it's just like whatever man we i got nothing else better to do so yeah. yeah um just to mention that california trip again funny thing about that well first of all rest in peace to the old nuki browns yes do, do you guys know nuki brown at all no. mm. newcastle brown newcastle brown they call them nuki browns and they changed the label and they definitely changed something someone must have bought them out or something oh, but it used to be this recipe old school silver label and it was the best beer ever. We drank like 12 of those every night when we were out there with Russ and we just listened to music. <laughs> a lot of German beers. And it was the best, man. I just... Venison nothing jerky. And then another thing. So in the, I guess, uh, bad things that have happened during the album. Not really bad, <laughs> but we... So we go So we go to Oakland and we fly out of the airport. Everything's great. Land in Dallas, Fort Worth. Okay. Uh, Saxon. So we land there. Dallas, 1 p.m. Yes. Not not that bad. But we land. Everything's <laughs> fine. And uh, hail starts falling. Oh, okay. Well, hail. Well, American Airlines decides to say, mm, best of luck. We don't, we're not going to fly out tonight to Rochester or whatever. Buffalo. We flew. To, they were going to fly us to Buffalo. So we're in Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, which is a great airport to be stuck in because it's literally like, Imagine the Dawn of the Dead mall. You, have you guys ever seen Dawn of the <laughs> yeah, Dead yeah. from the yeah. 70s? Yeah. Okay. And you're just stuck in like a playground of stuff to eat and like all drink this stuff. And, yeah, drink. Yeah. And, but it, so it was a great place to be stuck. But it was probably like 10 o'clock. We rescheduled our flight on the app and we didn't leave until like 9 a.m. the next morning. So we were stuck in, and we didn't want to leave. We were like... I am not going back through security again tomorrow. We are staying here and we're going to be like little, you know, uh, drifters through this, this airport. Yeah. I don't care. I'll go walk through the coach store. I don't, I'll do anything to keep myself entertained right now. Um, so yeah, we in were stuck. Fighter general t-shirt. Right. So we were stuck in that airport for probably, I don't know, like 16 hours just sitting there. And I still say to this day, it was like maybe 7 a.m. the next morning, and we don't have many Chick-fil-A's around here, but man, was that one of the best meals I've ever had in my entire <laughs> life. I just walk up to the Chick-fil-A, and I'm just like, 
I need like three or four sandwiches. I haven't eaten in a really long time and my <laughs> flight just got delayed again. Help me out. <laughs> so got the sandwich. That was all good. And we got out of there, but delayed to Chicago. Then had to wait in O'Hare for like eight hours to yeah. get back to Buffalo. Then finally got home and no fault of anyone's besides maybe the airline. Um, just another crazy story yeah. of how that kinda, all happened. Kind of doing a weird seg- segue from that because Russ puts out the Witchfinder general releases we would have never made marble eye if it wasn't for this specific moment we did that Witchfinder general cover of death penalty the song and when nick and i made that demo we said like all right same same deal we're just making music for the two of us and if one person's life is like we said like one person's life will be changed by this and that's it. That's the only standard that we held ourselves to with that demo. So I reached out to, I believe it was Cruz del Sur Music. And I said, look, I know it's almost impossible to get in touch with Phil from Witchfinder General. But I noticed that like one of your bands, he did a solo for, I can't even remember. I think it was Dark Forest. He did a solo on their album. I said, how did you guys get a hold of him? They gave me his email address and I think I emailed him in like January of 2017, right after we finished the demo. And he replied back to me. It was like February something of 20, you know, a month later. And he said, I think this is the greatest tribute I've ever heard <laughs> done to my music. Nice. This It's the greatest cover it was of death penalty I've ever heard. And I totally sanction you should totally go forward with this. I wish you the best of luck. So if, if it was never for Phil reaching out to me in that moment, I don't think we would have made Marble Eye. So that was like yeah. that was like the divine intervention. It's like we have we to gotta do that. We have to continue this. Yeah. Yeah. He was really the best. Yeah, we, cool. we love amazing. Phil. That's really cool. So I think you talked a little about the layout of Marble Eye. Who yeah. who did the artwork? <laughs> it's another story in itself. Do you want me to tell it? Uh, so let me tell my side of the okay. story, and then you can add to it. All right. So when any time of discovery comes during college, of course, not paying attention in class, I'm looking for artists for the to do the art for the next album, and I'm just like, I don't want to just rip something from, you know some painting that some guy did in the 1800s or whatever a lot of people do that they'll rip yeah. some random un uh non-copyrighted painting and they'll rip it and that's what they do there's hey credit to that i love those old paintings but i was kind of like all right you know if this is the only one we had to do i'll pick someone to do it and we'll try and find an artist to commission so um i ran into this guy uh i can't remember how i exactly found him but i was just searching on my computer during like a electrical materials class or something and i found his art and i was i was just so enthralled by the starry landscapes that he created in his art and this is just like art that he would give to people or sell and he wasn't really well known and i messaged him one day and i said hey we're in a band like do you want to do some artwork for us we'll send you some ideas for what we're thinking for the cover and well yeah uh, what do you think and he was just totally for it and we we got it made through him his name is chris manvel though he is like 
an awesome guy. He like lived in England and he I think you're missing a key awesome. part of that story though. We we had a picture in mind, obviously what you just talked about. Like we were going to take an old painting from the early 1900s. We asked the guy for permission to use it. And he said, under no circumstances can you use this painting. Oh, I totally forgot about yeah. that. What? Yeah. He, he's the sole person that can license this painting. And he said, no way. It's a no-go for you guys. Huh. So we're like, what are we going to do? So <laughs> It was a blessing in disguise, Nick, though, like yeah. I was saying Nick before. Nick got tipped off by another person on Facebook. Hey, you should maybe talk to this guy, Chris Manvel. He can either recreate that painting or do something custom for you. So... Nick reached out to him, and long story short, Chris had never done a commission before in his life. He always just did like free paintings and like, and then just gave them away, and gave yes. them away or sold, well, them, I think sold, he them, sold them, but he sold yeah, them to oh, okay. just to make a living, like on the side. But we told him, like, we are dead serious, like, we think you are the absolute best person to take. In a way, it's alchemy. It's like you're taking something that's abstract in our minds and you're going to make it real. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, and he delivered 100% in yeah. spades. Yeah. And he, we just told him the ideas of what we were thinking. I remember, I still remember the day we brainstormed the front cover yep. in the basement. We were talking about it, like, it's going to be like this. And you ever see that? perspective from the balloon from the moon blood cover yeah we're going to use that and we typed it all up we used we used force of equilibrium uh, force like, of like equilibrium for references we used uh kaspar david friedrich all the old paintings yeah. i still have that word document first, first angel witch album for like a perspective we mm -hmm. we showed him that yep and he had a little bit of a background with you know those albums but he was all like he was into heavy metal, but he was more like rooted in the 70s. So we had to kind of educate him. Okay, this this is Angel Witch. This is a John Martin painting from the 1800s. Yeah. Like, this is the perspective that we want. This is Forest of Equilibrium. This is um, Diamond Head Borrowed Time with the Giant Gatefolds. Yeah. And he was all into 70s progressive rock. So he was right up our alley. And it was he. It took him three months to make those two paintings for us, but it's... It's everything that we had ever hoped. It's important to mention, too, that we basically gave all the revisions or the updates or things that we wanted to be done with that painting through, like, Messenger on Facebook or email. We never talked to him personally wow. or, over the or phone. Or Jim Plotkin. Or Jim Plotkin, which oh, wow. was even more of a just crazy I, thing. I had many nervous breakdowns during Marble Eye and the mixing process. I was at my wits end. And this points back to the, you know, Nick, what, you know, what do you do with the band or what's your role in the band? I got to keep Alex sane <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah. he, he can get very caught into thought loops and yeah. everything. It has, so. to, it has to be perfect. <laughs> yeah. So then it, it got made and he went to like, I remember chatting with him and he went to like he who's, lived who's on the. He? Who's he? Sorry, Chris Manvel went to like he would have to walk to town to get the the, the paintings. Uh, I'm sorry, the canvas and the paint for the art. Travel back home, and when it was all said and done, he shipped it to us, and that was another crazy thing. I mean, we got it in the mail. Just yeah, you received that one, one day. There's only one of those in the world. It's one of a kind. Yeah and it's uh awesome yeah we got it framed That's so cool they're hanging yeah. like so 
the front cover was more my idea, like yep. the idea that I wanted for the front cover, and then the back cover is Alex's. So like he's got the back cover framed in his room, and then I've got the front cover framed in my room. So it's kind of like and it's it's important to note that all the songs are somehow depicted. There's tiny allusions or references to every song pictured from right to left as the album plays. Right. So when we made that cover um you can see in the ocean in the back there's a small island and that is the island that the dollar house is on oh. which is actually do we want to mention that that the dollar house is a it's, it's a real it's a place, real place. Yeah. is it the dollar oh, yeah. house is a real place on so do you know that lake erie has islands yeah so lake erie has islands some people don't know that and we used to go to this island called Putin Bay all the time. Uh, Legend lives on from the Chippewa uh, down. Yes, <laughs> Chigumi. <laughs> so that's superior. Uh, yeah, that's superior. Uh, but we would go to this island, and Alex could tell the story of what happened. But there is an old house that's on there. That's from I think it was built in like the 1700s or something. And it's uh, it was it's like a gr- house. Yeah, it was a wine. It wasn't a winemaking place. Now it's at called first. Put- now it's called Putin Bay Putin Bay Winery. Yep. But anyways, tell the story of this is bizarre about what's. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's really bizarre. So the, it so gets even Duller, more freaky. The Duller House is a real place. The song itself is a send up to. One of our favorite bands, Dream Death and Penance. It's basically the same band, plus or minus the bass player. But our family has a house up, or they used to own a house up there. And we went to go visit them, you know, at least seven seven or eight years ago. And we, to me, I I never believed in ghosts. You know, to me, it's, it's all, it's not real, but... I had this one trip over there and we were driving, we were driving at night. It was, it was like a, just like at midnight going out with our cousins. Yeah. And my cousin Shannon said, the Duller house is haunted. I said, yeah, yeah, right. I I just flat out do not believe in that stuff. So we're driving past the Duller House after a night of drinking, and I, I, I will swear on my life to this day, it's not like, you know, I was totally out of it or anything. I was completely with it. I looked up in the, at the tower of the house, and there was a little girl in a white lace dress looking down at me. I looked up, and then I turned away. And you know when you'd see people do, like, a double take, like, you don't believe what yeah. you just saw? I looked up again, and she was still staring at me in... I broke into like this complete cold sweat, like, holy crap, like this, this is real. And I'll be the first to tell you, like, there's no such damn thing as ghosts. I will swear on my life that I saw one that night. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So that experience prompted me to write this horrendous story of the Duller House. It, It was also inspired by something that my uncle Joe said. He said, like, People go through life and, you know, everyone dies, but there there are things worse than death. You can, you can live a life of suffering or you can die and you never have peace or rest in the afterlife. So I wrote this kind of send-up story that kind of revolves around that thought. Wow. Hmm. That's, That's cool. Deep. Yeah. But we, we try not to disclose, like, these lyrics, we'll never draw a line in the sand and say, like, this lyric, 
this lyric means this to me because then it ruins it for you. It ruins yeah. it for most people. Like, yeah, we, just we want interpret it whatever that, way you want. Whole, yeah. If Nick and I were to take that album and open it up right now, we would analyze every note and every word that, that we wrote that we wrote so we want someone else to do that it should be all encompassing for yeah, them what does I this like that. what mm. does this mean to me yeah uh stan i'm more of a movie guy than alex but like stanley K- kubrick would say this all the time like he would never tell people what m- his movies actually meant because and a lot of people i think a, a couple other directors have done it too but it's and i now understand it's actually really interesting to hear what people their interpretation, uh, their interpretation yeah. of mm-hmm. your art and it's yep. like and it's like more power to you i'd love to hear it's more exciting to hear what someone else thinks mm-hmm. about your music than to just hear yourself babble on about yeah. oh yeah i did this i did this and it means this and that's yeah. the end of the story yeah right so but uh continuing with the album cover actually the back is uh so the burning uh church is the uh that's the end of Erskine Hollow. That's the end of part six of Erskine Hollow. Right. right. So, yeah, it's got uh, tangled in with Erskine Hollow and then Golden Wolf Overseer is like the sky, basically, right? Yeah, it's kind of like the dawn of a new day, the promise of... Um, a new beginning, it's, I it's, guess. It sounds so lame. It does sound lame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's It's the... It's the greatest good that I could imagine in my mind at the time. I guess that's the only way to put it. Cool. But yeah, we drafted up all that stuff and sent it over to him and he did a fantastic job. Yeah. I Yeah. That was awesome. Loved That's it. of all the things that I'm proud of for that album, I mean, the album cover completely blows. I've never heard anyone say about that album cover, eh, it's just okay, you know, it's even if you don't like the music, man, <laughs> yeah. you're just going to love that buy, art. Buy it for the art, enjoy it for the music. Absolutely. I love the concept that you tie in your artwork with the meaning of the album, though, because... Well, it has to. Why? It has to be all-encompassing. Well, we kind of agree with you, mm-hmm. and that's why, like, if you look back at our show art, we um, we use Neve from Gruesome, Gruesome Graphics, and mm-hmm. he's fantastic. But if you look at the show art, mm. it's all... It's our life. It's our life. <laughs> it's what we yeah. talk about on the show, like yeah. specific stories, like there's Skeletor, like we interview Danny from Malignancy and yeah. we talk about that. Like yeah. I love the art of you guys in the bed yeah. where you're like this in the bed. Yeah. It's just fantastic. <laughs> or there's in a the, story. Yeah. In, the, in the original art where you're, you're fist bumping your yeah. cat. Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> What's so we get that. The, what's the one with the, would you, can you share the story about the one with the, with the bed? Oh yeah. So if you look at like the whole picture, um, my, <laughs> so I am barfing into a plastic bag, <laughs> which happened in an Uber yeah. Holy on the way home from a bridal show or a, um, engagement yeah. party mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Ken was the best man at. Mm-hmm. That was a proud moment. Mm-hmm. Nice. And that, that was the bag had my uh, wedding gifts. In my it. wedding gifts in it that she was uh, vomiting on, like his cufflinks. He had special cufflinks that he had to wear. The um, fact that he forgave you means it was meant to be. I washed everything off yeah. all by myself. That wasn't the worst part of that picture, though. Um, yeah. So if you look, my toe is in his ass. Yeah. <laughs> she when we were sleeping one night, she kicked me super hard in the night right in the asshole with her toe 
perfect aim. Jesus. It's the worst way to wake up ever. <laughs> wow. I love it. Oh, my God. So we love what you guys, yeah. my point yeah. is, not to oh. make it about us, but we just love that you conceptualize we, the we artwork. F- we feel weird that you're making it about us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we don't like talking about us. It, yeah, definitely. <laughs> this is the most you'll ever hear us talk. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I remember when we got the vinyl from you guys and we opened it and it was, we were blown away by it. Oh my God, it. Yeah. yeah. Like, so the, the music itself is awesome, mm-hmm. but like, you put so much into the the visual of it. Like yeah. The artwork, the layout, the it's not a thin vinyl. It, it's like everything. There's yeah. no cutting corners. Yeah. I every, think that, that ties into the, we call it the valediction statement. Yeah, that's on it's, the insert. Yeah. I mean, we made an album that we wanted to hear. And it, if anyone's seen that old Venom video from 1985... They, they say, we wish we were in the crowd, you know? <laughs> so that's that that struck a chord with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, sh- we should be making, we have the chance to make something that Nick and I think is the ultimate representation of the music that we want to hear. And if other people like it, that's freaking awesome. Yep. It's also, you, we are, we are one in the same, like the people that listen to our music, we are you guys. And, and the way I explain that is like, you know how many times like I've ordered a record and I get it in my hands and there's like there's nothing in there. Mm-hmm. It's like a piece of 180 gram vinyl and you're lucky if it's gatefold and a white sleeve and a white mm-hmm. sleeve. Yeah. It's it, like the only thing I change about maybe the whole entire thing is like I wish we ordered a poly bag instead of like the regular paper uh, insert. But anyways. You know I hand that to someone and I say you know me personally if I was buying a record. I would want an insert. I'd want a gatefold. I'd want all the lyrics. I'd want um, as much information about the band as I yes. could get. And I'd mm-hmm. also want a poster because I'm hanging that in my room because yep. I like the band or I just I just really appreciate what yep. they do. Like you want to show your full devotion to the band. Like the only other thing I could do is like pay more to throw a t-shirt in there or something yeah. like yeah. that, right? It's like, if, if you this, have, is the com- this is the best package we can put, even because <laughs> we had no idea, you know, we didn't care about the the length of the album. We even had to include a bonus seven inch in yeah, on it too, it just to make it fit. So <laughs> you get your seven inch and your 12 inch as well. If you have the chance to do something to the best of your ability, then why not do it? Mm-hmm. Agreed. Definitely. And you guys nailed it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate that. So, I asked so. you guys this at the Record Archive, I think. Oh. Um, and you kind of gave an answer. I'm going to ask you on. Oh, boy. There's ever a plan for you guys to play live, because that would be oh boy. awesome. Oh, my God. I would love that so much. Oh, man. That is, <laughs> this uh, is always the biggest like heartbreaker. I feel like that's a hard no. <laughs> this, is the, this is always that the is, biggest heartbreaker Im- whenever we talk to that people. That is not possible. I, I think I was telling Seth and maybe you guys the other day, if I could clone Alex, if you, if anyone wants to donate a cloning machine <laughs> to Nick Gray, please deliver it to P.O. Box 315. Um, no, uh, Alex does so much for the amount of instruments. Like, if I had to think about what we were going to add to play a live show. Mm -hmm. You'd have to get me and him together. And Alex can't 
he probably couldn't do singing and playing those riffs at the same time because they're pretty complicated no, I, riffs. I physically can't. So do he it. would not have a guitar in his hands. So you would never see Alex like shredding out the solos probably during the show unless it was like during a non-singing part well, and someone pick would, up the guitar. Someone would have to be playing the rhythm part. Someone would have to be playing the rhythm, the bass. You'd have to have a synthesizer, uh, someone to play the synthesizer parts for Erskine Hollow. You'd have to, have, and then you'd have to rehearse for like probably just months to get the music basically, down. Basically, right? we have barely enough time to make an album. We to to put all that effort into a live show and find people that want to play our music and up to our standards weir- you can say weir- it weird brotherly <laughs> standard you've always heard like david lee roth or um who's the other guy i'm drawing a from blank van halen? from van halen yes michael anthony yeah it, like when those guys said in interviews like it was really hard to win an argument when you had two brothers that were leading the band basically yeah, it's like that. the kinks you, amoebics heavy yeah, load you're never gonna win any argument that you have with me and alex because it's our band and it, people might not i mean it's just ta- it, it's a real logistic nightmare and i would because there would be so many cool ideas you could do like i think about it all the time when i'm driving to work like if you could find people that are dedicated enough like and like i was saying before when we were talking about this uh the way the archive does things like i've never been a fan of shows where people come and like you're playing like this really deep and thoughtful and spiritual music basically and i'm not saying that sorry you're playing music like that and like the first thing that some, music that evokes y- an emotion y- it, emo- yes. it evokes an emotion yeah. the first thing that comes to some guy's head is to start moshing mm-hmm. which i've moshed plenty of times at punk shows but i'm you know when you're playing things like that you know you want it to be like a situation like they have at metal meltdown where it's really like a lounge and people are really there to digest the music yeah. like there's a there's a a concept of also like the crowd has to be up for it too because this isn't I, like that I think situation I, I see it from a different standpoint it's almost like an ideological thing with me so almost every piece of music i've ever heard i know i will never see the four tops live i'll never see celtic frost live with the classic lineup to me the ultimate representation of that music is found on the record Mm-hmm. So if I, it's not always absolute, but if I see someone play live, it's awesome. But it's never to me going to be the ultimate listening experience that I get on the record. So yeah. And uh, like, that's just, that's just how I grew up. Like with all our music, obviously me and Nick don't listen to too much. Obviously, we don't listen to modern pop music or whoever is popular right now. Right. So the cool bands to us growing up were Iron Maiden on the Killers tour in 1981, Black Sabbath playing in 72, um, Poison from Germany. You know, I'm never, ever going to see those bands Mm -hmm. in person. So to me, it's like our album is meant to live in people's minds if that sounds like too far out but like that that's truly how i experience music i'm never going to see beethoven richard wagner when they first made the music but at least i can make an experience if someone puts that record on 
that is it's the ultimate listening experience to me and Nick. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree with that too. Like the perspective that I had was different from yours, but I think another thing just related to that is you know, I think maybe when you had Mark Rapona and he was saying the same thing, like whenever he back when he was with Christ, he would say mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I'd finish a show and like the sound wasn't quite right or this wasn't right and I'd be pissed off for the rest of the night. Like, uh, you know, I'm a little bit more logical. It's like you could go through a lot of work to do that stuff and like one thing could go wrong and you prepared all that time. I mean, that's part of the excitement of it all Mm -hmm. for sure. But it's like, man, like it's a daunting task. I think the point was we never wanted to go through this album having regret and I know for a fact we do not. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think that's, that's that sums, think that it, up sums it up perfectly. Yeah, no regret. That's awesome. No regrets. No rag regrets. <laughs> regrets.
you guys to pick a grandma's pantry selection for your episode i love the name <laughs> and you guys picked poison yep some early brett michael stuff right there <laughs> yeah Boy, he really changed his sound I'd, I'd eat him and smile <laughs> yeah for sure so that was uh yag sothoth yep from the into the abyss demo classic stone cold classic so how how were you guys influenced, or how did you find that band? I originally found them just surfing YouTube in college, I think. I remember you got the demo, got the demo. Yes, yes. And um, basically, I remember surfing my 
classic iPod on the bus and listening to this in probably like seventh grade. Are you serious? On the bus. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's absolutely. Awesome. Everyone's <laughs> looking. Awesome. I mean, like on top of like listening to Creator's Pleasure to Kill and Morbid Angels, Altars of Madness. You got all these like sixth or seventh grade kids looking at me like I got four <laughs> heads coming out of me. But yeah, that was in the rotation of something that I probably listened to daily. Yeah. And that band is so cool because they they were in touch with some of the most extreme bands going at the time. I mean, they they were in touch with Hellhammer, Trouble, Sirithungol. They were influenced by Black Sabbath, obviously. Um, Slaughter from Canada. I knew they used to talk to them. They were friends with Destruction. Um, and they, I think they knew Sodom, but they had never toured or like had ever met them before. They knew Messiah, but that to that to me is that's one of the greatest early black metal demos of all time. I mean, it's pretty hard to top that. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> I'm like speechless. It's, 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 you guys it's fucking as, cl- as classic face. as it gets. Because we probably looked like a bunch of maniacs here, <laughs> blasting and yeah. airing out the riffs. We know, we know, like every note to that album. Yeah, and yeah. you know, just when we discovered that, we became kind of poison fanatics. And years later, I think in college, Alex would show me. He's like, "Yeah, you remember that band Poison? Well, they have this. It was it." Is it Bestial? What's Bestial Death. Bestial Death. He shows me the Bestial Death demo, and it is like recorded on. It's pretty rough. But it's when literally you, a two-track demo. It's a two-track demo, but when you listen to it, it is the most heinous, awesomely grungy stuff. Just awesome. I love that demo. And there's there's a reason Dead from Mayhem said that that Bestial Death demo was his favorite. Yeah, and, and bands like you can hear you can hear. Poison were so unique. You can hear bands like Early Mayhem, Morbid from Sweden, Earliest Fix before they put their full length albums out. There's all of that is influenced by Early Poison. Yeah, they were definitely pioneers. And I guess when we came to you know discover them, it was just kind of like that was another dimension of yeah. music that we we came in contact yeah. with. Totally wild, wild shit. I like it. Why do you? I think, I think a label or two has reissued some of that stuff. But why do? Yeah, you f- um, Foad Records from Italy. Foad they remastered yep. it. Uli, I think he actually helped with the remastering of it. And yeah. Um. Real quick, I know you contacted Uli one time, <laughs> yeah, didn't you? Yeah. He made this band called One Pass Zero after po- obviously after Poison because they broke up in '87. And I found his email address on like a CD and I, you know, I sent him a message. I was like, hey man, like I love all the early Poison stuff. Um, what type of equipment did you use back in the day? Because I see like you use like this kind of like knockoff flying V and like maybe just like one distortion pedal into a Marshall 50 watt. And he answered me back and he said that I don't even have the internet. This is through my, excuse me, this is through my band member's email um, I just used a Marshall 50 watt. I used flying V knockoff and an Aria distortion pedal, and that was it. That pedal literally looked like it was like straight from 
like the pizza shack from Toy Story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It, it was crazy when you showed me yeah. a picture of it. It's like, dude, this is what he used. And I'm like, but the most is, important it's thing, crazy. the most important thing he told me, and this will stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, have a good time all the time. All the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> from Uli Hildenbrand from Poison. And Cheers we, to him. We salute you. Cheers to freaking Uli Cheers right there, man. <laughs> But I mean, it's that's just, a, that, so cool. that's another case too. Where I mean, I'll I'll circle it back to you know when we were making the album. Like we had so many people tell us all the shitty record deals that they had back in the day, mm-hmm. and those guys got royally oh, screwed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally screwed. Alex knows the details. It's, it's, the sa- it's the same with all the new wave of British heavy metal bands. They had these companies that would scoop them up, like. Uh, Classic example, A to Z, they did No Fun After Midnight, The Witch of Berkeley. They had Polydor, who used to put out Beatles albums. Mm-hmm. They scooped them up. They put out Witch of Berkeley, which was a live album from their high school. They made them do another single, No Fun After Midnight, and um, I'm the One Who Loves You. And then they just, you know, they didn't know how to push a band how to like push that. them yeah. yeah same thing with poison they said hey sign to this teutonic thrash invasion sampler mm. but if you sign to this sampler you're not allowed to talk to any other record labels for a year and we're going to decide if we're going to sign you or not one band out of that entire sampler got signed and then poison they might have gotten a record deal but if if they because they signed with teutonic thrash they were stuck. They were stuck for an entire year, and then the band folded. You know, mm. and it's the, just a classic story of keep keep the rights to your music and yes. don't don't answer to anyone. And I have to say, Andrew from Witchfind and Brian Lawrence from Dream Death. That was the two most important. Th- I mean, it's common denominator. They both told us when I was talking to them. You know, during our demo days, they said, "Do not." ever sign with a record company try to self-release self-finance everything and never give up your rights to your music ever that was that was huge hearing that from andro montalo from Witchfind and brian from dream death yeah absolutely um i think another thing from the poison guys too that just really resonates too is like the amount of like you look at that equipment that they used oh, and how crappy that equipment was and they still made like the best noise possible <laughs> yeah. out of all that stuff yeah it, you can really just like i guess the, the lesson there is you really don't need a lot to make you know f- to make the greatest that, music that music is so evil and intense but it's made by a couple 19 year olds just thrashing out the heaviest shit that they can imagine that, i mean that's it's just it's just cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. A lot of respect and a lot of just like reading up about that demo. It was huge inspiration. Yeah. Can't say enough about it. The big DIY aspect and the tape trading days that we read about, like from Ross with the Immolation demos, Poison, all those guys back in the day in the 80s when they used to trade demo tapes, that was a massive, massive influence to us. And especially... Like our father, when he would buy the Spiral Scratch record from the Buzzcocks, that was independently released. All those Cleveland bands, yep. Um, yep. punk bands putting out their own DIY stuff. That's that's the school of thought that Nick and I come from. Yep. Yeah. So, 
It looked like you had something to say. Yeah, (laughs) I wanted wanted to ask, um, after listening to Poison, are you guys covering a Poison song? (laughs) We could. Well, we kind of already did. We did. We did Wake the Dead. We did Wake the Mm -hmm. Dead. As a rehearsal on YouTube, but we could. Oh, yeah. I mean. So for the next album, we have plans to record that. We're going to record a rehearsal almost like, are you familiar with um, the Goat Lord rehearsal from Dark Throne? Somewhat. Okay, so basically they had a, I don't know if it was two track or four track reel to reel tape recorder that belonged to Ted's mother. They put that in the center of a room mm-hmm. and they ripped through their entire album live on a reel to reel tape recorder. Mm-hmm. So Nick and I have this plan. We're going to do that same thing for basically as rehearsal tracks for our upcoming album uh it's tentatively titled reconversion we're gonna basically cover the seven songs on our album and then we'll do maybe a cover track from forgotten woods poison and a couple other bands maybe slaughter just you know just for the hell just for fun like i think the one thing that we wish that we had during marble eye during that whole time and process is just we never had someone just sit down and record even just with one mic i mean our parents maybe and a couple other people we had that album so down to a t rehearsed we would start from land of stagnation and go all the way to golden wolf overseer played it once but it was just me and him so it would be drums and guitar and we just rip through the entire we'd rip through the entire album and i 1000% 1000% wish we we had that from that time. I yeah. wish we had that. Yeah. We're not sure if that exi- I mean we may have recorded a rehearsal but it's you know, maybe. Maybe. But we want it for this one. So yeah. that's kind of the plan and it's kind of the old we, school we way could, if we yeah, put it like on it. my dad's yeah. got a reel to reel player so if we can figure out how to make the thing some work. Some of the tunes <laughs> some of the tunes some of the tunes that we cover when we first like just start before we even start playing our album, we do like Under the Sun by Black Sabbath. We do Wake the Dead by Poison. Mm-hmm. Vorvinter and Rar by Forgotten Woods. Tales of the Macabre by Strapato. That one's always Slaughter, fun. yeah. Yep. Or did I say Strapato or Slaughter? Yeah, you were just said the album. It's no big deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, are there any others that we cover? I'm trying to think off the, the top of by Verathron. Yeah, that's a that's a that one's tough. cool demo. But yep. just very very obscure shit that not a lot of people yeah. listen to. Absolutely, old school maniacs would know it for sure. But it's yeah. I have a weird question. <laughs> we I love lo- I we love, love your weird questions. weird questions. This might be a stretch, but I, I'm curious about some because we have this opposition too, Jen and I. Um. Now, I noticed when we were listening to Poison, I think that Alex is left-handed. Yes. And Nick is right-handed. Absolutely. Okay. Do you find, do your brains work differently musically because of being right and left-handed? 10,000%. Really? I don't know if it's attributed to left and right hand, but like my brain's way more logical and like how, just like I approach everything. It's not like Alex isn't logical. It's just... Mm -hmm. Every process, it's always the same logical, like, rundown of things. And then mm. Alex just, like, I don't know. How do you explain, like, how your brain works? I'm, <laughs> I can't. Your creative brain <laughs> that a lot of people I, wish I just, they had. I just, like, 
I hear something once and I can play it. I don't know how to describe it. Huh. I, have, I have this very strange thing where if I hear Witchfinder General or Black Sabbath or Merciful Fate, like I can just... He can pick it out it's, on it's the fretboard. Very, it's very strange. My hands just magically move to the spot on the fretboard where wow. it needs to be because I, I don't know. But in terms of creating music, Nick is very logical and he has to have like an example of where was this you what's the where used where was this done before and yeah. then he can relate to that for me it's more like oh you just do it this way you like, know fuck it let's just yeah. do it yeah it it just comes naturally <clears throat> to me i don't i don't know i think it's a good combination though i don't know how to describe it it's, in words it's a lot but of, a lot of yin and yang like you said before yeah mm-hmm. 1000% two completely different mindsets that meet in the middle but without compromise maybe <laughs> it's a little bit of a catch 22 there but yeah. we'll let it go yeah blew your theory out of the water what what's my theory because i'm more like nick hey but i'm left-handed ouch are you <laughs> yeah. yeah well okay if it means anything alex and i are both pretty messed up or in more ways than one, but in one way we're well, messed yeah, up. Us too. Yes. Um, <laughs> so like I was a sports, you know, I grew up playing sports all the time. Um, and like I was a hockey player. I shoot left-handed. Ooh. I bat left-handed. Hmm. Um, I do a lot of things left-handed, but I write and I play drums right-handed. And it's the same with me. I write with my left hand. I play guitar left-handed. You but, play hockey right-handed. any sport with a swinging motion, like I swing a baseball bat and a hockey stick, I'm right-handed with those. Isn't that insane? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Pretty messed up. Golf swing is right-handed. Yeah, right-handed. Um, I'm trying to think, what, what else do people do? What else do you do? Um... If somebody offered me a million dollars to punch somebody out with my right hand, <laughs> I'd be broke. Like, See, that would be my dominant hand. Even though I write with my left hand and play guitar with my left hand, my your right hand leads throw, forward. My throwing hand and my punching hand would be right hand. Is that insane? So he's not southpaw or whatever. No, definitely not southpaw. Hmm. Oh, I am. Wow, that's crazy. Which was also interesting to me, too. Like, growing up, like, I think music is made for left-handed people. I mean, think about it. So, if you are right-handed, obviously, your dominant hand... Or no, hold on. I got to think about this. It's all backwards, right? It is. Everything in our world is backwards. Right. Nick, they're ganging up on us. So if if you're if you're naturally I mean so to me I played trumpet growing up it just made more sense to me that my lead hand was my right hand that's Because that's how you were taught and that's how everyone was doing it or that's how it felt comfortable No that's that's what you do when you play trumpet your right hand is always your lead hand right Well but And also when you play piano when you play leads on a piano, okay. on, the, on the higher yep. pitch notes, yep. your lead hand is your right hand, Yep. right? But a left-handed guitar player, their fingering hand is their right hand. Yep. So if you're a right-handed guitar player, 
which I think everyone is in this room, right? Right-handed guitar player? Yeah. Right-handed guitar player? No, you're left-handed? Okay, so if you're if you're a right-handed guitar player, mm-hmm. your fretting hand is your left hand, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that never made sense to me because if you switch if you can switch to piano, mm-hmm. your lead hand yep. is your right hand. Yeah. So to me, it does mu- make sense when music you say is, it like music that. Music is made for left-handed people. Yeah. That's the creative mind least, working right least, there. I would never at think least that. Your lead, your lead <laughs> hand, I always made my lead hand my right hand. Right. Okay. Trumpet, piano, guitar. Sure. It's just, huh. that's what made sense to me. I mean, it makes sense when you say yeah. it. Yeah. Music works in strange Yeah, unfortunately, ways, we are totally messed up because we use <laughs> different hands for different things. Yeah. Well, but it's interesting that you say that. Now that I look back, so Ken has tried to get me on a any instrument, like, ever since we met. So yeah. we started with, like, a, what was it? Like, in a little acoustic... Kazoo. Guitar. No, it was a kazoo. Yeah. Nice. But it was for right-handed. Yeah. yeah. So I originally learned how to play, play guitar, mm-hmm. air quotes, mm-hmm. right-handed. Mm-hmm. So your fretting hand would be your left hand. Yes. Right? But when you sit down and play piano, your lead hand is your right hand. Yes. That never made sense to me for a right-handed person. Why would you switch hands doing your leads? Why not make one hand always be the lead? Yeah, that totally makes sense now that you say that. Trumpet, you always play lead with your right hand. P- uh, guitar, a left-handed guitar player. Right-handed is the fingering. And piano, leads are the right hand. Maybe that's where we w- went wrong with the bass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got me that bass <laughs> that sits over there and collects dust. <laughs> mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yep. I didn't think that question would lead to this, but that's... Very, you never uh, know where, where it's going to take you. Yeah, of course. Interesting.
That was track five off of Marble Eye, Golden Wolf Overseer. Can you guys tell us about the new material that you're working on? Wow, he pointed to me. Yeah, going over to Nick. Nick's in charge. Oh boy, it's fantastic. Uh, we have all the material that's written. Um, I'd say it's about 90% written, right? Whoa, really? Correct. Yeah, it's all written. I think the main thing... And, and rehearsed. It, yes, it is. Well, maybe not... To play pol- out, right? maybe not. Oh, oh yeah, a thousand percent. <laughs> yeah. It's not rehearsed like to a point where, where we can record, but it's definitely rehearsed to a point where we know all of our parts and we just need to get together to basically iron all that out where we can you know in a concert band when you get together as a concert band in you know elementary school high school whatever everyone knows their part and how to play it and you rehearse multiple times and you know how to play everything all the way through for your recital right that's kind of what we have to do when we're going to go and record we have to have everything ready and together like we have to be a tight-knit machine because i mean when we play our stuff and we record it together we don't have a rhythm bass section so it's like both of us have to be extremely like know where we are on point uh, for the song absolutely it's also for this upcoming album i kind of so like we talked about before nick was nick did his drum tracks and then he was away at school so he was the creative control while i was working now it's i've past that opportunity for him to be the leader for this album right so another thing that you know on top of the music that i want to upgrade on this time is the how we use the technology that we have so like upgrading the interface actually learning how to use basic audio engineering basically where you take your microphones and you know how to use them all the crazy whacked out stuff that we did for that first album like would we'd probably get like 40 lashes for it it's just like it's not standard at all and it caused a huge headache for when we were mixing people that are that will listen to this are probably going to be like wait you guys didn't know what you were doing for that fir- for that first album no yeah, i find that surprising yeah we had no idea uh, like yeah. i could tell you all the crazy stuff that we did for that Some, album like someday, if you guys want to know someday we will write a book on what we went through with that album yeah because I mean, it, it can't be it can't be covered in a two hour or four hour podcast for sure um it, it just can't so there's that part of it and i think the mo- the major thing that we have to do to get to the recording process i mean the technology i think will kind of figure itself out since we've been developing that for maybe the past six months Mm -hmm. just on my own um is just having those songs rehearsed but there's a couple other ideas that we've been having for how we want to record the album right yeah i think from a soundscape perspective i mean we have to talk about the equipment so there's Nick's drum set, which has completely changed. I mean, if you've ever seen old Sodom videos where Chris, Chris Winchhunter is playing like this giant sonar kit, yep. Nick has that kit so, now. So let me take a detour on that real quick. So another thing during COVID while we were waiting for the album to come is I knew I wanted to upgrade my kit for the next album. So I had a Tama Silver Star for the first uh, album. And that worked out really well. Is that the but same it, kit that Mike played on Abomination? No, no, that's a t- 
Tama Imperial Star, I think okay. he told me, and he said it was. He, I messaged him one time. He told me that set was a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> he said he hated that thing. Yeah. Um, I, I love it. It's it's, it's, it's awesome on that demo. Sounds but like it's a thousand for, years old. Yeah, for me, I wanted to upgrade that. So what I did is, um, I started looking for um, Sonar Phonic, which is uh, th- that drum set was on all the ACD ACDC albums. Um, it's just a everyone knows that kit to be like awesome to record and it's a pretty famous vintage recording drum set so the big three guys that play sonar is it sonar or sonar sonar okay I think. so the big three that play that drum set are phil rudd from yep. acdc chris witch hunter from sodom he plays the babinga version of it yep. but yes and kim, kim ruiz from merciful from fate. merciful fate he played the concert time version of that set yep um but I wanted that set. I mean, you listen to that first Merciful Fate album and you're like, that is one of the best drum sounds ever. I mean, the room has a lot to do with it, but it starts with the, sometimes it starts with the equipment that you're using. So I decided I went online and I found that um, someone was selling a, f- so it was a white 1979 Sonar It was in pretty rough shape, but I decided to buy it. And all throughout COVID, I decided to, did you fix restore it up. It? I restored the whole thing. Oh, that's fucking cool. So I cleaned it, rebuffed it, put new heads on it. Um, I'm trying to think of what Imagine else I did. That. Cleaned all the lugs, took everything apart, and just had at it. So what I cut? Oh, keep, keep going. going. Sorry. Um, and then I also messaged another guy from New York who had a black version of the kit, but it was a th- one, two, three piece. So I f- bought that one fixed it up, cleaned it up, rebuffed it, and got it basically brand spanking new. And so he basically has this alternating black and white kit that we call a cow. It's now. the cow. Oh, that's cool. I like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, and I also you know, we also are getting a bunch of I've gotten a bunch of new symbols and stuff. So I just want the sound you know, all that equipment has to be I wanted to upgrade that for the for the next album. Yeah, so so that's Nick, Nick has definitely upgraded his drum kit. Yep. I still have my Laney setup, basically the same thing that Phil Cope used in Witchfinder General. I have basically his rig. Okay. He used that, but you bought an SG. I bought an SG guitar. Well, I had the SG for Marble Eye. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. The big thing that's we're going to use for this album is, are you guys familiar with uh, Dream Death's Journey into Mystery album? Oh, I totally forgot about that. Mm, I yes. am not. It's in, it's in there somewhere. So <laughs> Terry Weston sold me his son amp that he used on that album. Oh, wow. So we're going to use that. But that's, for... a, that's his rehearsal amp. That's like what he uses at his house all the time to play our songs. <laughs> and it's yeah. going to be, so it's going to be featured on the album. That's nice. going to be one of the major guitar tracks. Like it's, mostly going to be played on that amp to carry on the legacy of that awesome amp and what it did for the journey into mystery album. Mm-hmm. I'm going to detour a little bit on that of the whole story of how we met. Can I detour on that and how we well, met let, them? Let's get, th- let's get through the upcoming album. Sorry, first. go ahead. So obviously we have upgrades to our equipment and then also, so I think we explained before with marble. Eye, we were trying to make like, what are the heaviest riffs from the 1970s? How are we going to have the storytelling qualities of early progressive rock music, yep. the Sensation of Alex Harvey band, um, just and then the obscure riffs of the the underground 80s bands that we really like. So now I think the influences have changed slightly. We're listening like 
We still maintain at the core, it's Black Sabbath, Witchfinder General, Candlemass, but we also have integrated some like very early Kim Rose era, Merciful Fate. Which is funny because we didn't start listening to Merciful Fate until maybe about two years ago. Yeah. So there's Merciful Fate on there. There's um, there's a lot more Bathory or yes. Hades, Hades from Norway. Yep. There's, there's a um, lot more, uh, I would say... We have never like been, you know, we don't, we love the singing in black metal. We love the fast paced drum beats of black metal, but we never wanted to put it together in our, our music. It doesn't gel with our music. Mm -hmm. So we want, I I think a better way to say is we, we can't do it justice. We can't do it justice. So we like the feeling that those specific albums bring to us when we listen to them. So how can we integrate that in how we write our music? And I think we've done a pretty cool job on yeah. doing that. We have a lot of influences. There's, there's early witch find added in. There's um it's a lot more Hawkwind. Any anything that was that has a steady repetitive beat, almost like early Motown music, Hawkwind, if you listen to ACDC, they always have a steady like that ins- constant inse- beat. I called it the incessant snare beat. There there's gonna be a lot of that going forward with the album but it, it's weird because when you say that it's like merciful you're but you're in a merciful fate that they change riffs like every 10 seconds so <laughs> right there's gonna be a lot of twists and turns with the next one coming up yeah sure. yeah for sure it and i don't even it's tough to map that out right now it's so hard to just it's so hard to talk about it until people hear it right we also have this completely whacked out idea where we're gonna do that recording on the reel-to-reel tape tape player but we're gonna do it in like a secluded cabin as well like totally live oh nice yeah it's like go out in the middle of nowhere and just just hammer it out for a day or two and you guys are recording it yourself yes Yes. everything is gonna be diy we do everything everything besides i mean we'll try and mix it a little bit maybe just to see how we mix it even with marble i I did some of the pre-mixing but then jim totally took jim totally revamped it but yeah i mean we could talk about all the influences in the songs i mean um but i think it would wouldn't really do it justice until you hear it um but we have like the number of songs how long they are um what equipment we're going to be using um the mic setups that we're going to be using how we're going to record it i think we have all that figured out it's basically just finding enough time to rehearse it to where we have it down perfect so instead of going for the heaviest riffs that we can possibly imagine, now it's like every song must make us feel a certain emotion. Yeah. And so it's we, meaningful now. It it would be I mean like, it was meaningful on Marble Eye, I'm yes, sure. But, but but now it's like if you just if you hear the music, you should be like absolutely crushed by what you're feeling emotionally. Yep. And I think that comes I mean there's a little bit more instead of a riff, as Fenris would call it, a rifforama. Yeah. Uh, from it's uh, there's a little bit more structure, I would say. Yep. Um, and we kind of dwell on riffs a little bit more instead of just going from one riff to another yep. riff to another riff. We also have this concept for the next album. So we there's seven songs, and we start out with the first song is I believe summer, then it goes summer fall 
fall, late winter. <laughs> Hold on, you can't you can't quote me on this. I actually have it written down, but basically they're the first six songs are gonna go through the season. So it's summer, late summer, early autumn, autumn, winter, late winter, early spring, spring, and then it's gonna be the seventh song is gonna be everything comes full circle. Oh, okay. So that's like another overarching concept that we have for this album. It'll be seven songs and then it's the six seasons that we have here in New York and then the seventh song is everything comes together in one full circle. All extremely inspirational. Every time of year is inspirational. I'm I'm not sure people would catch like the obscure things that we did on Marble Eye. So like if you listen to like the Duller House, that's like water. If you listen to Erskine Hollow, that's fire. If you listen to Land of Stagnation, that's earth. And air, er, air was Marble Eye, and then the fifth song was like it all comes together in like a void. Right. I'm, I'm not sure people would ever catch on to that, but that's like an obscure illusion that we kind of put together. Wow. Everything was done with like like you can't imagine how much thought we put in yeah i can tell (laughs) but uh, just to sum the summarize the current process right now and where we are we have everything written we just have to rehearse it uh to a point where we feel like we can lay it down in a rehearsal and lay down tracks for it but the lyrics are not written no No, and that's like part of our process where the music comes first the music always comes first the lyrics are later that's uh it's a second thought kirk cobain said that Ooh. Music comes first. Nice. I like it. All right, so the next album, are you guys going to do the same process as far as the the vinyl, the packaging? Yeah, 1,000%. I wouldn't want it to be any other way. Like, nice. cheap out and not do gatefold or be like, mm-hmm. nah, I don't want to do an insert. Or I, I mean, it's... I would like it. I think the only thing I'd change with the packaging is not having a seven inch because that like really bumped up the price, and yeah. that was really only because there was more music than what could fit yeah. on a on a standard thirty three and a third. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would just that I wouldn't change anything, and I'd include it in the same package and have the same effort yep. of art put into it. Yep, and it's still all gonna that. be gatefold. There's probably gonna be if anyone has the old Sabbath Volume Four gatefold, you you open it up and then there's an extra page that sits in the middle. So it'll be, you have front page, flip over the front page. There's the back side of that. And then you'll have kind of like an inner right-handed page, flip that over. So it'll basically be like a one, two, three, four, five, six sided LP that you can look at six sides. that you, So awesome. Yeah. So that'd be where the money from the from this. That'd be where the money from the seven inch goes. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be where the money of the seven inch goes to. <laughs> Six things to look at. So That's yeah, cool. it, it'll still be I think the same amount of musical content and everything, and we don't want to cheap out. The effort on, will be the same, but probably a little bit more stream streamlined. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we've done it once before, so you know it'll be a little bit easier to do it again. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, <laughs> you have uh, artwork concept. Uh, no, no, same I, guy. I do in my head. Alex does in his head, but 
bringing that to a full fruition idea takes a lot of direction and can we actually do this like it's one thing to have an idea but it's another thing to ask somebody to do it and not have it, it cost takes, a ton it of just money takes time effort and explanation and money and money mm-hmm. so yes the the concept is is there yeah so the, yes. yeah concept is there just maybe not we haven't commissioned we would like to have chris again do it yeah. again mm-hmm. so no way i are no we will never do that no way <laughs> i've only seen that be infiltrated by the uh if you guys know dungeon synth it's a new uh newer genre even though it was started off with mortis back in the 90s mm-hmm. um i love that genre of music but that is very much creeping into that genre of music where someone will make an album mm. and they'll just hit a button or something and makes art crazy. Yeah, that's not for us. Yeah. Yeah, you guys put a lot into what you do, so yeah. it it wouldn't make sense to do that. Mm. Why take a shortcut? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally agree. I mean, look at all those classic albums like Slaughter Strapado, Force of Equilibrium, those early progressive rock bands like King Crimson. I mean, could you imagine them making those album covers on a computer? It, you know, no. just doesn't make sense to yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Plus, I can hold it in my hand and hang it up on my wall yeah. when I'm done with it. <laughs> <laughs> so until until the next album is done, is Marble Eye still available on vinyl? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's available from us on Bandcamp, mm-hmm. but if you are in Europe, uh, we recently got a distribution deal with High Roller Records. Oh, nice. So we have, I think we sent about maybe 30 copies or something I, yeah, to I them. Yeah, it was 30. And if you're in the EU and you don't want to pay the astronomical prices to ship it across yeah. the Atlantic Ocean, uh, yeah, go and get it from High Roller Records. They gotta deal with us and so I they be- are great supporters I believe it's it's available at dystopian dogs yep temple of mystery in canada buried by time and dust in california mm-hmm. and high roller records in germany yep. and from us personally but we only have maybe 30 of the 250 copies left yeah awesome nice yep and some of those great maniacs from Hong Kong who decided to buy our album. Thailand. Thailand. Denmark. Sweden. I, I just, love it. I just think it's crazy that there's, there's people in Hong Kong that's it's, paid yeah, like 30 bucks to wild. get it shipped over there. I love it. <laughs> you guys are worth it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Box of nonsense. Uh-oh. You guys got to pick a question out of the box of nonsense. Okay. What's in the box? You want to go first? Nope. (laughs) Do you want to pick a different one? (laughs) No, go ahead, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I got to think about this one a little bit. If I had to choose one animal to help me win a fight, which animal would I choose? I don't know why, but I'm just... Yours is so much easier than mine. (laughs) I thought of something immediately. I love seeing my brother suffer a little bit every once in a (laughs) while. Yeah, he's a little uncomfortable over there. Damn you. 
take this take a little bit of time with this one so i can see him just sit there and fester in his in his pain overthink yeah i don't know i think i'd pick i think i'd pick a cat some sort of cat like animal like a jaguar just cat thing oh okay i'd pick a jaguar because they're fast and cats can basically kill anything and they kill for sport so as long as you could tame it pleasure to kill yes <laughs> so if i could tame the cat the jaguar and it could be my furry friend like your wonderful cat upstairs yes I notorious would have fat notorious fat <laughs> <laughs> the cutest little cat um i'd pick a jaguar all right i like it okay mine is do you have a secret talent uh-oh my secret talent is I can play the accordion, but I don't show. I've never played in front of anyone besides my family. Watch Why? out for the watch out for the secret accordion solo on the next album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of jealous. I feel yeah. left out. So our grandfather, our grandpa Graywit, was a professional accordion player at age 13. Wow. He won. He, he won a Wurlitzer Run competition where like 300 or 400 people. Maybe even more from the Cleveland area went and performed at a Wurlitzer competition, and he we had the certificate he won that says place. he won first place yep. for it. So you can see where the musical talent comes and he, from. Totally. And what did he win? Like six hundred dollars back in some nineteen like thirties cr- or nineteen. Yeah, he won a like a decent chunk of change for he that amount of time. Yeah, so oh, that's yeah. that's a lot of money for back then. Yeah, and I inherited his accordion and. If. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me you inherited a $600. <laughs> no, I wish. It's worth a lot of money nowadays. Um, have you guys ever That's heard... awesome, have though. You, have you guys ever heard the band The The? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How about the, the, <laughs> the song This Is The Day? I don't I couldn't pick out a song. Okay, but. so if you go online, if you if you hear the song This Is The Day by The The, mm-hmm. I can play that song perfectly on accordion with my grandfather's button box. Nice. Yep. So that's my secret talent. That's cool. But I, I, I never play it in front of anyone. That's amazing. I <laughs> yeah. love that. I have a yep. side question. Okay. Was your grandfather left-handed? No. Okay. At least not from the videos that I've seen. No, he, he used was, to. He's right-handed. He used to play at like polka parties. He was in a polka band. Roll he, out the barrel. Oh yeah, he. Oh, he was a partier. Oh, he was definitely a. Yep. Great man. Definitely Polish. Oh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh okay, so we're gonna see you guys play out soon, right? Yeah, I mean, just want to push that button. Not exactly. When we asked before, <laughs> it sounded like maybe. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. You can come okay. to my house and sit in the basement and watch us rehearse. That's probably the closest you can get to watching us live. Well, I was explaining to Je- cool. I was explaining to you guys before, like, so the amount of energy that would normally go into playing live that goes into the thought that goes behind the music so it's there's like a finite amount of energy that we have as a band so if you think about it is a finite currency or whatever you make of it so the parallel that i was talking about earlier is you have a classroom of 30 kids or you have a classroom of five kids and i have something that i need to teach them what class is going to learn better, the classroom of 30 or the classroom of five? Probably 
five. Yep, classroom of five. If I have $100,000 and I'm going to give it to 100 people or 10 people, who's going to be better off? Your grandpa. My grandfather. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of like how that's the parallel, I guess. So the energy that would normally be expended into playing live is basically, for lack of a better term, spent spent on the thought that we put behind the music. I love it. I think that that's what makes us really unique. I respect that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And if anything, maybe we could get a, uh, we have a camera. Maybe we could record the rehearsal one day. Oh, when yeah. we do it, we'll, we'll put a camera up and yeah. just like how, I, I think I told Ken about this when I saw him uh, for the first time. Uh, there's a video of Emperor before they went out and played in England mm-hmm. in 1993. They're in, yeah, they're like in a room like this and they're just blasting out everything from the first album and their demo and the EP and like you can come back to that at any time and watch Faust at 19 years old blasting out those drums Mm -hmm. or you can watch Ishtan play I Am The Black Wizards right there in crappy VHS quality but it is still awesome so I I think it would be cool to give that to Stone Cold Classic just basically (laughs) give that to Post it on YouTube for the we'd love to see people that. to see. Yeah. We yeah. would love it. Yeah, the true maniacs. <sighs> yeah, definitely. All right, guys, it's over already. Well, let's do a part two soon. Yeah, I would, would love, love that. To. Yeah, because this went by like really fast. I know. It felt like fifteen minutes. I know. Seriously, and it's past all of our bedtimes. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably should have been better to do this on like a Saturday or Sunday, but... Next time. Next time. We'll do a part two, part three, part four. Always. Part you guys five. are always welcome. We got a pool. We got a pond. Pond would be good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Name that movie. <laughs> you see that there? That's uh, Kentucky Bluegrass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks, Grims. You guys are the best. Yeah, you guys are the absolute best. You're no, the best. You. No, you. (laughs) All right, we're recording this the following day. Nick and Alex have gone. They're not here anymore. (laughs) Um, We had a great time talking to them. Yes. Uh, Super likable, super knowledgeable, Mm -hmm. very passionate at shows and their music. Yep. Um, And we look forward to talking to them again. Absolutely. So we're going to end with one more song, right? Yeah, we're going to end with uh, a a Witchfinder General cover that they did, which is really cool. The song is Death Penalty. Fantastic. Until next time. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Don't be an asshole. And? Have a good time. All the time. (laughs) 